Maybe I'll just, oh, there it is. Okay. Well, good morning. Um, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to ch- uh, Matthew chapter 18. As you're turning there, uh, just to get things started, would you believe me if I were to tell you that this year, the year 2016, could be a record-breaking year? Now, when, when you look outside today, you might think that I'm talking about something like global warming. Uh, But what I'm talking about is something much less important than that. What I'm talking about is in the big four sports in North America this year, and we're talking about the big four, what do we mean? We mean hockey, baseball, basketball, and football, okay? So in each of those sports this year, we could have record-breaking seasons where one team in each of those leagues has the best regular season on record. Pretty incredible, right? Well, let's, let's look at two of them. I'm, I'm being kind of facetious and hopeful for two of them because when you look at baseball, the season hasn't started yet. But I see the Toronto Blue Jays as winning every game this year, okay? <laughs> Same thing with the New England Patriots in football. Okay. The other two, though, are a bit more grounded in reality. What I'm talking about in hockey, the Washington Capitals, maybe you're familiar, maybe not, they're, they're just off the pace right now to set the record for the best regular season. But, but the most thrilling, I guess, um, story right now in sports, the one that's, that's most publicized, is in basketball with a team called the Golden State Warriors. Anybody, anybody heard of them? Yeah, Dan, I'm sure you've heard of them. You've seen what's been going on. Right now, the Golden State Warriors, after a win last night, they have a record of 53 wins and only five losses. Now, two things make this record impressive right now. The first thing is is that when the Golden State Warriors play basketball and they've won 53 games already, they're playing against other professional teams, right? They're playing against teams with players that are being paid millions of dollars to play basketball, and yet they've won 53 out of 58 games. And the second thing that makes it impressive is that every time the Warriors play, The other team knows that the Warriors are the best. And so they want to play their best game, and they're always motivated to play against the Warriors because they want to be one of those teams to walk away from the season and say that they gave the Warriors a loss. Now, for those of you who don't follow basketball, maybe right now is the first time that you're learning that there's a team called the Golden State Warriors in basketball. Anybody hands up for that? Emily? Okay. (laughs) Before I give you too much biased information talking about how great the Warriors are because they might set the record for the best season. Okay. Um, Before I give you too much biased information, we only need to take a couple steps back in time and go back to the 1990s in basketball when there was another great team, the Chicago Bulls. And a guy played for the Chicago Bulls. Can anybody tell me his name? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, during the 1990s, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls set the season record for 72 wins to only 10 losses. So right now the Warriors are a little bit ahead of them. But what makes the Bulls of the 90s so impressive is that they won six championships throughout that time. Three straight, and they did it twice. The Warriors right now have only won one championship. So as I was thinking about this, as I was kind of reflecting, I thought, if we're to sit back and try and consider what would be the greatest team of all time, 
would we be quick to say that the Warriors were the best team because they had the best record of 73 wins in a season? Or would we still have to fall back and say, "Mm, maybe the Bulls of the 1990s with Michael Jordan were better because they were able to win six championships in a span of eight years? Now, if you want to look with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, if you've read ahead at all, you can see that this, this idea of greatness, of wanting to call something great, is exactly what the disciples come and ask Jesus about. Even if you don't follow sports, the question can still stand. What makes something great? Whether it's a basketball team, or movies, or homemade pie, what makes something great? And not only great, but, but what makes something the greatest in comparison to everything around it? Um, on the passage that we're about to read, the disciples come to Jesus, and to paraphrase what they're saying, the disciples come and they say, Jesus, you've, you've told us about the kingdom of heaven. All the way through the book of Matthew, we've been looking at that. You've told us about the kingdom of heaven, but, but for those of us who are already inside the kingdom, what does greatness look like? Or what makes somebody great? Before we, before we start reading it, one, one more quick uh, thing that I want to do is just look back in a summary of where we've been. Um, we've been looking through the book of Matthew, and we've, we've broken the book of Matthew up into five discourses. And the five discourses of Matthew are basically portions of Scripture where it's just kind of exclusive Jesus talking. There's not really any storyline development. It's just, it's just a, an exposition of Jesus teaching about a, a particu- particular subject. So Geo was the first one to cover the first discourse, and he talked in Matthew chapter 6 uh, about a bigger portion on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure we remember some of that. And then Dwight Knight took the next discourse when he talked in Matthew chapter 10 about Jesus sending out the disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Gio again spoke on two of the parables found in Matthew chapter 13. So today we're looking at Matthew 18, which is the fourth discourse. And this discourse is generally considered to be about Jesus' teaching on a community, the kingdom community, and how we're to relate to one another. The final discourse is going to be spoken on in the coming weeks, and it, it's in Matthew chapter 23, and it mostly focuses on... Um, on eschatology or, or the things to come, the end times. And for me, I, I just want to bring, bring a mention of that because I found it really helpful when I'm looking at the book of Matthew now to give the book that structure of the five discourses, and that's how it's broken up. And it, it kind of gives the book shape so that I know how things all fit together uh, as the book of Matthew unfolds. So again today, we're in the fourth discourse, And I'll be just looking at the first four verses. As a bit of a roadmap before we get started, I want to talk about three points. The three things I want to look at from this passage are number one, worldly greatness. Number two, Jesus' definition of greatness. And number three, growing in kingdom greatness. So let's just take a time right now to read it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for this time that we can have, for your word that you've given us, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. I just pray that right now that you would open our eyes uh, to your word, that you'd open our eyes to the wonderful things that you've, you've given us in your word and the truths that are there. Would you help us? Would your spirit lead us? We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So as I've said, the first thing, the first point that I want to look at is worldly greatness or the world's definition of greatness. The start of this chapter opens with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking them, them asking him to clarify who is to be considered greatest in the kingdom. And as simple or as innocent as this question may seem, I mean, they're simply just coming to him and asking him a question, right? Um, but we, we learn a little bit more of, of this story. Matthew doesn't describe it, but if we were looking to the other Gospels in Luke chapter 9 or in Mark chapter 9, when the disciples come and ask Jesus this question, there's, a, there's another bit of information that's put in there. And it says just before they asked this question, they had been arguing amongst themselves as to who would be considered greatest. So when we, when we read that, we kind of get a bit of a better understanding as to the intent behind the disciples' question when they come. Calling ourselves great uh, isn't something that we're really used to do. I don't think we're really that comfortable, especially for us in the church. You know, we're, we're taught to be um, humble. And so we wouldn't go around calling ourselves great. It's not something that we would explicitly say out loud. Um, in certain areas or environments around us, though, if we, if we ever watch TV or even in the workplace, um, the idea of calling, of self-proclaimed greatness isn't too far-fetched or outrageous to believe. Uh, one example, all we have to do is look down at the news coming out of the states right now and the, the presidential campaigning, right? Donald Trump wants to make America great again. Or uh, to go back to the world of sports, Muhammad Ali. Have you ever heard of Muhammad Ali? He was a, the world-famous world boxer back in the 1960s. He won the heavyweight championship in 1964. And along with being known for one of the greatest boxers of all time, uh, he was also known for his witty but very boastful quotes about himself. One example, he says, I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived because there weren't no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around, so people far away in the villages didn't know about them. Or he'd even follow it up with something like this. My only fault is that I don't recognize how great I really am. <laughs> now, as I've said, most people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis don't really talk like this. We're, we're kind of more subtle than that. But for the disciples, they don't really seem to have the same hesitations or subtlety uh, from what we've read. But before we write off the disciples as, as people who are ridiculous or completely unrelatable in the way that they approach life, let's just consider a couple things. When we talk about the disciples and, and we see their, their picture or their story, these are men who have given up everything to follow Jesus. They're men who have left behind jobs, careers, their families even. And they've also committed everything of themselves to the promise that Jesus has given of a future coming kingdom. And everything that they have now, their life is bound up in that promise. They've committed themselves to it. These are men who, who in tangible ways, like most of us would probably never be able to appreciate in our life, had sacrificed and sold themselves out 
on the promises of what Jesus had given. I mean, just to ask myself the question, would I be willing to give up what they gave up if Jesus had asked me to do so, to follow him? I mean, we're not all called to, to live like that, to give up our careers, to, to move away from family, um, to follow Jesus. We're not all called to that. Um, but but if, if I was asked to do that, if, if I felt like I was being led, would I, be, would I be willing to do that? And so when we look at the disciples, these, these aren't ridicu- ridiculous people. These are men who are, in some ways have very admirable qualities. They have qualities that would be very difficult for me in my, in my own life to emulate. But when we look at the disciples and we see them following after Jesus, when we see them following after the promise of Jesus' kingdom, we can see that as the story unfolds, uh, even while they were clinging to the promises that God has given, um, the disciples were using the kingdom of God and that promise to pursue and promote their own desires, their own agenda. It was almost like the, the disciples were saying, sure, Jesus could be king. We get that. You've come as the king. But we want to be princes. Or it's like, Jesus, yeah, we get that. You can be first, but, but we want to be right behind you in second. We want to be recognized. What the disciples are showing us in this account is that they've allowed their own self-interest and desire for recognition to cloud their understanding and their direction for what Jesus was even talking about when he talked about the kingdom. The disciples thought about the kingdom when they thought of it. They thought of status. They thought of promotion, recognition, honor, authority, even respect. And their vision of greatness had been diverted and been clouded by the values not of the kingdom of God, but instead of the desires of their own flesh and of the values of the world and how the world would would um, describe greatness. Status, authority, and power are things that the world tell us what matters. They're the things that our sinful flesh longs for. Things to, like to be recognized, to be respected, to have people answer to you, not the other way around. And as I took, took a break to, to think about this, where we find ourselves now, let me ask two questions. Number one, do I care about being considered great in the kingdom? Like, is the kingdom something that I'm even caring about? Right? Like, if the church, if my faith, if my hope in the future glory that Jesus has promised, if all that were taken away, would I still be okay with, with going through life? And would I still be able to accomplish the goals that I've set for myself in life? What kind of goals am I making? Or to put it this way, what kind of kingdom am I building into? Am I building into God's kingdom? Or am I building into a kingdom of comfort? The kingdom of financial security? What about the kingdom of social respect or admiration? That's the first question. And the second question, number two, how have I allowed worldly influence and fleshly aspirations to influence my vision of and fuel my drive for greatness in the kingdom of God. Like when we look at the church, like look at our church in relation to the world around us, would we feel like we'd be a more successful church if we had more people? 
if we had more seats filled. You know, sometimes we can look at other churches around us and see hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of people in an auditorium. And not that that's wrong, not that that means that those churches have been unfaithful in some way, but, but when, when we look at that, when we look at that, does it make us question whether or not we're doing something wrong here because we don't have as many people? What about when we look at the, look at the non-believing world around us? To what extent do I want appreciation from non-Christians about my lifestyle choices or about my own faith, right? As Christians, the Bible talks about us being kind and loving and gentle, and the world, the world can be okay with that, but, but how far am I willing to go um, to be appreciated by the world? Am I still willing to stand up and call sin as sin, even if the world doesn't appreciate that? Or am I willing to stand up and defend truth? What about in our own fleshly desires for recognition within our own church here? We as individuals. Do I want to receive recognition from, from you guys? Like, I want, I want you to think, oh man, this, this guy, he's got his life together, or he can really preach a great sermon, or what, what kind of things am I pursuing in this church? Do I use biblical practices, you know, things like reading my Bible or praying, or even the idea of coming to the breaking of bread, do I use that to exalt my own self, to, to elevate the value of my own spirituality in relation to other people around me? And here's, here's one too. Am, am I willing to obey principles of God's kingdom when relating to people around me, even if I know that I won't receive an earthly benefit? Things like giving to the poor who will never be able to give back or helping somebody in secret, uh, being welcoming or inclusive to somebody that would generally be regarded as unimportant. How have we allowed worldly influence or fleshly aspirations influence our vision for what greatness looks like in the kingdom? In the picture of the disciples, we see a group of men who have committed their lives to the call of God. And yet they'd allowed their own ambition to corrupt the vision for how Jesus describes the kingdom. From the perspective from which Matthew is writing this account, um, we almost have a comical scene before us, right? Matthew is portraying Jesus as the king. And yet here we have the disciples who are concerned about their own greatness. And they're too interested in their own greatness to recognize the king who is standing in front of them. Now, if I'd been the one to write this story, this short bit here in Matthew, if I, if I could write the script for how I would hope it to go, I think at this point, I would love to see Jesus put the disciples in their place. You know, like, I remember growing up, uh, one of my favorite things to do was to wrestle with my dad. Um, and usually he'd go easy on me, and he would uh, let me pin him every once in a while, and I'd be climbing on him and trying to tackle him. Um, and it would be all good. But every, every once in a while... I remember times where I'd catch my dad kind of off guard or he'd be unaware and I'd accidentally hurt him a little bit. And I might have been laughing as I was running away, but I knew that when he caught me, there was nothing that I could do to stop the beating that I was going to get. 
right? I'd be pinned down and squashed until I begged for mercy. I'm sure, Dan, you can relate to that. The, the idea of that, the idea of power being, being brought to justice or authority structure being reestablished, that, that would be what I would hope for in this story. You know, maybe it would be Jesus making a couple of the disciples just faint instantly at that point, you know, just to say, whoa. Or a quick flashback to, to, Ma- to Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus is transfigured before three of the disciples and they end up being thrown on their face uh, when they see the glory of Jesus. That would be something that I think when I heard the disciples initially ask this question that I would hope Jesus would respond with. But that's not how Jesus responds, is it? Instead, let's go back to verse 2, and it says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't respond here by simply enforcing the disciples' idea of greatness, of authority, structure, and power. If Jesus responded in that, in the way that I would have dreamed up of him of him responding with power. Um, The disciples may be reminded of Jesus' authority, but when they were to look back at one another, there would have been no change. When they were to look at one another, they would have still seen each other as the same and said, you know what, I think I'm better than you. I want to be called great. I'm the greatest. Jesus doesn't respond like that. Instead, what does he do? He completely changes the idea of what greatness means in the kingdom. He redefines it. He calls over a child and places him in front of everyone and says, do you want to be great? First, you don't even have a place in my kingdom. You don't even know what it means to be in my kingdom unless you humble yourself like this child. And second, my kingdom isn't arranged like the way that you would naturally think. Greatness in my kingdom is defined by humility. So as the disciples are hearing this, that the posture of humility like a child symbolizes greatness, what does that look like, to be humble like a child? And I kind of settled on three things that that would symbolize what make children humble. Uh, Number one, children have a willingness to be taught and an openness to be impressed. They're not afraid to admit when they don't know something. And they're more than willing to submit themselves under someone who's presented as their teacher. Number two, children have a lack of concern for social importance and social structure. The idea of social classes, um, all those kind of things, it's not even developed in their heads yet. And so they don't have issues playing with different children, even if they're coming from completely different backgrounds. And number three, parents kind of hold back your chuckle as I say this one, that they obey without full understanding of why they must do so. Now I know that 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 might not always be true of our children, even if we look back on our own uh, own lives when we're growing up, that that we might not have always obeyed without knowing why. Um, And so sometimes we need secondary motivation like discipline. Um, But that's beside the point. This is how Jesus has chosen to express the ideals of greatness in his kingdom. A child. So so when I look at myself, or when when we look at ourselves, let's ask ourselves that question. Do I have a willingness to be taught? Do I have a teachable spirit? 
Am I willing to submit myself under God's word and allow it to correct me? Or when somebody in the church or my spouse challenges me about what God's word says and how my life doesn't necessarily line up, like how I'm not being kind, gentle, loving, am I teachable in those moments? Am I willing to listen to the Holy Spirit in those moments? Or am I more eager to try and pick holes in the other person and the delivery, how they presented it and how maybe they didn't do it in the nicest way? Am I more eager to point out their flaws and their weaknesses? Am I willing to be taught? What about my concern for, for social importance and recognition? Am I hesitant to declare what I believe in front of others for fear of looking foolish? What about in the church? Do I only accept tasks or responsibilities that I think will demonstrate my natural abilities and so people will think well of me? Just as a bit of a side note, Gio sent me an article just a couple weeks ago as I was thinking about preparing for this sermon. And uh, the, the title of the article was The Hidden Beauty of a Bad Sermon. So basically, the article goes along with the author recounting all the mistakes and awful sermons that he's ever had to sit through. So picture with me, I'm, I'm thinking about preparing for this sermon, and Gio sends me this, right? Okay? So the article concludes, though, by saying, young preachers, new preachers, preach bad sermons. They preach bad sermons as they, pre- as they learn to preach good sermons. And in some ways, those bad sermons serve as a mark of the church's health and strength because they prove that the church is fulfilling its mandate to raise up the next generation of preachers and the one after that. They prove that the church refuses to be so driven by a desire to display excellence that they will not risk the occasional dud. Do I hesitate to step out in small ways because I think that I'll look incompetent? even if I feel like the Lord's leading me to to serve him in that way? Even in small things, you know, like being willing to to, uh, welcome somebody who comes in the door. Do do I hesitate because I'm I'm afraid to look foolish or I don't know what to say instead of simply obeying? How concerned am I about social recognition? And finally, do I obey without full understanding? I think I would have a lot, of, a lot easier time uh, obeying the great commission that Jesus gives about going forth and, and sharing his gospel with all people. If I, I would have an easier time doing that if I knew and I could see inside their head as to the thought processes that are going on. And I could know that maybe in some way they might not accept the Lord at that moment, but I could know and I could see how when I speak, or the conversations that I have with them, how that influences things down the line. And that in some small way that that my conversation had a part in leading them to know the Lord, to come to that decision. But we don't often get that. We We don't often get to see how the conversations that we have influence the people, because we don't get to see the end result. And as a result of that, because I don't get to see it, because I don't know whether or not there'll be a result after, after me sharing, I hesitate and I hold back. And, and 
and I don't want to follow through because, because I'm afraid. I doubt whether it'll make a difference. And as I've chosen the specific example of being willing to speak about Christ with others, I can see this happening in, in, in lots of other areas of our lives. How different would our church look or the ministries that we're involved in, even in our own self-discipline to put to death the things of the flesh um, and to walk according to the Spirit? How different would, those, would all those things look if we were willing to obey even if we couldn't see the final result? Right? How, many, how many times am I willing to indulge a fleshly desire to just hold on to an angry thought for just a little bit longer because I don't think that'll make that big of a difference in the end? Do I obey without understanding? The disciples came to Jesus asking him which one of them was the greatest, hoping that he would respond with their names. But instead he flips the script and presents the image of a child. Humility willing to be taught, not concerned with social status, and willing to obey without full understanding. I think at this point, with some of those questions and and looking at our own hearts, we could see that as we stand before God, we, we all fail. We all fall according to that standard. And in the way that God, through Jesus, has qualified greatness in his economy, we don't measure up. If we were to view the idea of greatness or being great as a sport, our minds aren't even playing with the right rules. Thankfully and mercifully, uh, for those of us who are Christians, who, who have come to know and love the Lord Jesus, while our old sinful nature, uh, our natural fleshly thoughts, um, are insensitive and unreceptive to the things of the kingdom of God, the standards and values that he's set up, for those of us who have entered the kingdom, uh, there's, there's a separate work that's going on in our life. There's a new power in our lives, namely the Holy Spirit that's changing us, stripping away our insensitivity to God's kingdom. He's renewing us and realigning our thoughts. And this brings us to the third point. There's one thing that I can think of that when we see Jesus' response here is so important. Let's just read the verses one more time, starting at the top. At that time, Jesus came, or the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, saying, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples came to Jesus asking, what it means to be great, what's the first thing that he says? Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. He doesn't start by talking about greatness. Instead, he starts by talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. If we're to just stop and consider the idea of entering the kingdom, if I were to ask you, to explain to someone uh, what it means to enter God's kingdom, how would you answer? If you had somebody come up to you who didn't really know the Bible, but they've, they, they, they want to be part of God's kingdom, and they were to ask you to lead them in that, how would you respond? Um, I'm sure if I gave you a piece of paper and some time, you could write down a lot of the truths and the thoughts that, 
that uh, are familiar to a lot of us about what it means to, to enter the kingdom. But, but if somebody were to come up to you and, and in, a, in a quick way that you wanted to say, here are some of the key points and to lead them in a logical progression, what would you say? I remember being taught a simple trick to help me remember three things uh, when leading somebody uh, in the idea of salvation. And it's helpful that the three things uh, begin with the letter R. Number one, we, th- we think about the idea of man's ruin. We've sinned, we all have sinned, uh, and we can't stand before a God who's holy. Uh, and this God, in order to be true to his own character as holy, must punish sin. Number two, we speak of God's remedy. That God has provided a way of salvation for those who repent, who change their minds about their sin. Um, and that remedy comes to us through Jesus' death on the cross. So we have man's ruin, God's remedy, and then finally we have man's responsibility. That Jesus' death on the cross doesn't automatically just forgive everyone um, at, that, at, at that instant, but God says that if we come in faith and we accept Jesus' work on our behalf and we ask for forgiveness for our sins, that he will in no way turn us aside, but that he will forgive us. So man's ruin, God's remedy, and man's responsibility. When we look at the first half of Jesus' response about entering the kingdom, we can see the idea of humility in all of these things. Right? We're humbled by these points because they tell us that on our own, we've made a mess. On our own, we're sinful. We're ruined. And that we're the ones who are responsible for that. It's not the environment that we've grown up in. Um, It's not society. We're the ones who are responsible. It tells us that we can't do anything to make God respond to us. Saving us was his idea, and he was the one who initiated it. So when we look at the idea of receiving salvation or of entering the kingdom, we can see that it makes sense for Jesus to equate it with the idea of humility like a child. We humble ourselves before God in recognizing our own inability to do anything to save ourselves, like childlike humility. But if there's one thing that we must, must, must remember, responding to the gospel requires humility. But we must never think that we grow away from the gospel into bigger and better things. I think that this is exactly the reason why Uh, when Jesus is asked about greatness, he says that the posture, the posture of how we enter the kingdom is the very thing that defines us as we grow in maturity, as we grow in kingdom greatness, as our lives more closely reflect the king. The idea of wanting to move away from simple faith in Jesus uh, and wanting to access deeper spiritual truths or, or something outside of Jesus Uh, was something that was a constant threat to the disciples' teaching throughout the first century. Um, And it usually took the idea of something that we call Gnosticism. Uh, We can see throughout the New Testament different passages, like for example, the first chapter of Colossians, where where Paul just sets aside just a a big chunk of the chapter just to simply talk about Jesus, and that it's, it's only about Jesus, and that Jesus is fully God, and that Jesus is enough. It's a simple and explicit exaltation of Jesus. So here we have the disciples. And if I could read their thoughts, it's almost like they're saying, you know what, 
Jesus, we're willing to accept that we're part of the kingdom here at point A. We get that. We're at the kingdom in point A. Point A is entering the kingdom. But I don't stand out here at point A. Anybody can get to point A. Jesus has offered entrance to the kingdom to anybody, right? We see that earlier in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 11, where it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is for anyone. So for the disciples to be part of the kingdom at point A, there's no room to feel proud of themselves like they did anything to earn it. So rather than talk about point A, it's like the disciples are saying, you know what, let's talk about point B. Jesus, what puts somebody at point B or even point C? Which one of us is farthest along in the kingdom? I'm not sure if you can relate to this, but I know that I certainly can. As I feel like I should be progressing in maturity as a more experienced Christian, sometimes I have this idea where I'm not comfortable in simply just resting in the idea of Jesus. Um, Jesus alone saves me. I get that, and I can, I can, I can assent to that. Um, but as I think about growing and maturing, sometimes I feel like, like I should be getting into deeper things, or I feel like I need to contribute somehow. And so instead of finding comfort or peace with God in recognizing that God sees me in Christ's goodness and in his sinlessness, I feel like in some way that God is disappointed with me somehow because I still continue to sin. Even though I'm in the kingdom, that he's disappointed with me because I still struggle with sin. And as a result, those the things that motivate me for trying not to sin, things like praying, reading my Bible, You know, it's like if I read my Bible and I pray, I feel better about myself because in some way I feel like like God's more proud of me as somebody in his kingdom. Or like, like it's not as big of a stretch for me to think that he could love me. But what does Jesus say? The posture of humility towards God that you require to enter the kingdom is the posture that demonstrates those who are greatest in the kingdom. The message of the gospel is always something that should humble us. It's not something that simply gets us in the door. The gospel, the good news that Jesus alone saves us, should always humble us. And it humbles us because even for those of us who have accepted it a long time ago and and we've been part of the kingdom for as long as we can basically remember, uh, the gospel tells us that even now, God looks at us and sees us as his loved adopted children. We can do nothing more to make him love us. And we can do nothing to change our relationship with him. The gospel points us away from ourselves. It points us away from the possibility of thinking. It points us away from the possibility of thinking that somehow God's disappointed with me as his child. And that if I could only be a better Christian, he would be proud of me. Ultimately, it points us toward the goodness and love of our father. A love based on the fact that he's well-pleased not with us, but with his beloved son, and that we can be found in Christ. This son, the Lord Jesus, who while we were yet enemies with God, came to live a life that we could never live, to die and pay a price that we could never pay, so that today we as people can be here as a group of his children, enjoying and worshiping God, who has given us a love that we could never earn. 
if I were to ask you to stop and take a moment to just reflect inwardly on your own visions of what greatness means or of, or of what you think you should be to be great in the kingdom of heaven. If you could change three things about your spiritual life, what would they be? Uh, maybe it would include something like being more patient or not responding out of anger to your kids, your spouse, people at work. Maybe it'd be, it would be that you could have a better hold of your tongue or that you wouldn't gossip as much. Uh, maybe it would be something like how you could spend more time praying or reading the Bible. Maybe it would be that you would have greater boldness to share the gospel with those who don't know. We can be pretty quick, and I'm sure even as I said that initial question, that things came into all of our minds. And so it wouldn't take us a long time to think about things that we wish we could change. But I guess the next question is, why do we wish we could change those things? What's our motivation? Why do I wish I read my Bible more? Or I prayed more? I didn't swear or gossip? I know that too often for myself, these things that I've listed uh, become to me the very things with which I evaluate my own greatness. My perspective becomes clouded, and so I start to evaluate my worthiness, my greatness, based on how well I can attain to these standards that I've set for myself. So I feel good if I, if I leave myself enough time before work to wake up, uh, to pray and read my Bible, or I think of myself as more spiritual than somebody else who doesn't make it out on Wednesday night to a prayer meeting. Looking at the example of the disciples, we see men who wanted to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And if we can look through the lens of human reasoning, these were men who had far more to stand on in their boast for greatness than we ever will. Of all the people that Jesus had ever interacted with, he handpicked these 12 men to be his disciples. And yet they forgot that the idea of being Jesus' disciple The importance of that comes not that they were chosen, but the importance of their teacher. They were all eyewitnesses to the miracles that Jesus did. And yet somehow they forgot that it was Jesus' divine power and not their witnessing the miracles that makes them story worthy. These group of 12 men stayed with Jesus when a bunch of other people left Jesus. And yet they forgot that the the whole reason why they stayed was because it was Jesus alone who had the words of eternal life. It's my prayer for us all that as, as we move forward as a group of people who love God and want to embrace the principles of his kingdom in our life, under his authority, that we would reject the temptation to elevate ourselves and to seek greatness as defined by the world or even our fleshly influences but rather that we'd humble ourselves like children. So in in things like our service with the gifts that we've been given, that rather than thinking of ourselves as great because of how well we can speak or teach, that we would remember that God is the one who's given us these gifts to do so, even the language to speak. That in our pursuit of knowledge and increased understanding of doctrines, that we wouldn't be puffed up by by the idea that we can understand more than the person next to us. But rather, we'd we'd be caught to reflect on the fact that these doctrines are speaking of an incredible God. 
and that we wouldn't think of ourselves as great simply because we can understand truths that fail to fully express who he is. That as we think about our own discipline in reading God's word and praying, that we wouldn't evaluate our greatness based on our own consistency, but rather we'd recognize that our consistency, any consistency that we demonstrate, is simply a testimony to the fact of our own evaluation of Jesus' greatness. The worthiness of knowing our Lord. The, the idea that we want to know him in increasing intimacy because, because he's worthy of that. And that in so doing, uh, that as we know him more, that we, we would have the ability to worship him more truly. And finally, in our, that in our efforts to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to a broken world around us, that we wouldn't be motivated or dissuaded based on our own perceived skills in delivering an argument to the people around us, but rather we'd be driven by the desire to see others come to recognize their need before a holy God, to acknowledge that apart from Jesus, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, and that they would embrace the all-surpassing worth that we've came to to understand about the Lord Jesus. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time that we could have to look into your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would teach us, uh, would open the eyes of our understanding, and that we wouldn't simply seek to be humble in our own efforts, Lord, but that our humility would be the result of our increasing understanding and our increasing love for the greatness of the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.